thank you first of all for taking the time out to talk with me to start off i just like to know personally what is your professional and educational background i've been a criminal defense lawyer my entire legal career i've worked pre predominantly as a public defender um and then even after i left the office the bulk of my work was indigent defense representation whether it be appellate or post-conviction work also taught um i've done a clinic over at Emory Law School, um, an indigent defense clinic where students learned how to try their first case, and then um, have students involved also now at Innocence Matters. Okay, and um, how long were you actually doing work at Emory? I was there for two years. Two years? Okay. Yes. What was the need for you to help create Innocence Matters, and when did you actually start that up? Well, in... On July 3rd, 2007, while working at Emory um, as the director of the Indigent Criminal Defense Clinic, I received an email regarding Troy Davis' case. Then he was scheduled to be executed in two weeks. Um, and I was asked to write a letter on, his, uh, on behalf of him to the Georgia Board of Pardons and Paroles, who was currently considering his case. Um, I wanted to learn as much as I could about the case before I chimed in on it, um, and so I obtained some of the transcripts and the records, the recantations and the original statements of the witnesses, and I became um, quite concerned about what I believe to be uh, very weak evidence used against him at trial, and then the uh, overwhelming force of the new evidence that had been developed, as well as um, the extent to which Red Coles, Sylvester Red Coles, was ignored as a viable suspect. Um, so I, be I became quite engaged in helping Troy Davis at that, from that moment on. I met with him and his family. Um, I went to Jackson to visit him several times, and we were in communication by mail and phone. Um, when I, I left Emory to come back to California and uh, with a focus on starting Innocence Matters, um, I did some work pro bono. With before the organization was officially created, and then we created it um, in 2010. So Troy was actually the inspiration for Innocence Matters. Wow, okay. What is the criteria for you to take on somebody's case with the organization if you feel like they're being wrongly accused or being wrongly prosecuted? We, our criteria is that we have to be convinced of their innocence, and whether that be um, by a review of the evidence and or supplemented by the uh, person's willingness to take a lie detector test and um, anything else that we can do to satisfy ourselves that we're spending our resources on people who are factually innocent. Once we've made that threshold determination, and, and everybody's aware of that, that's the criteria, and that if we, along the way, we have reason to, to have a concern about the, that they're not innocent, that um, we would, the organization would not continue uh, to represent them. But the bulk of what we're trying to do and where we're putting our efforts in terms of seeking funding is to um, think about and develop preventative programs that would um, enable people who are factually innocent of crimes to secure the right result at the very earliest opportunity because if they go beyond trial, to get in a situation like Troy, where the entire system is um, turned on its head and it's all about defending the conviction. Um, so 
one of the things that programs that we've developed is an I Am Innocent program, which is uh, designed to mentor people who are in a situation where they're being represented by lawyers who may not be paying attention to critical evidence that they need to develop to secure an acquittal for their trial, their, their client at trial. Um, that's a brand-new program, and it's still in the development stage. Um, another preventative program is uh, an investigation clinic where we would provide pro bono assistance and actually help plan the investigation strategy and provide the services by getting out there and interviewing the critical witnesses and going to the crime scene. I want to go back and touch on this quote that I actually read from an article that was published April of this year. It's from RT.com. And they have you quoted as saying, poor minorities are expendable. It becomes less about who did it and less about the search of the truth and more about holding someone accountable. And because people are African descent and minorities and people who don't have money are treated as expendable, it doesn't matter if we get to the truth. So in your opinion, what was the main issue or what were the many issues that made the Georgia Parole Board and the different a court of appeals not give Mr. Davis the clemency that he was asking for throughout the years? Well, I think that that um, quote that you just read for me would be more um, applicable to the early um, stages of the case, right? That when you have, if you if you just compared Troy Davis's case to the Duke Lacrosse case, um, early on during the investigation stage, what the what the police and the prosecutor will accept as sufficient evidence to justify going further. I believe, in reality, is very different depending on who the defendant is. If you have a, uh, an indigent or, or um, lower-income minority as a defendant, they're less likely, the case is less likely to be subject to the scrutiny that it's entitled to and that it deserves. You have wealthy, middle-class white defendants who are falsely accused of a crime. They're more likely to have the resources and the means to insist on the scrutiny that the case should receive before there's even a, a, a charge, a filing decision. Mm. So that's, um, that's really what I meant to address in that particular quote, that very early on critical decisions are made, and whether it's consciously being done or not, the fact of the matter is that if you're poor, your chance and you're and you're a minority, your chances of getting justice and an appropriate decision um, suffer significantly. And as the case continues, and if there's any discrepancies about the verdict later on, it makes it just that much harder. To well, yeah, and I, I, mean, I think I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think also what becomes a critical issue is during the trial, the jury selection, how the jurors respond. Mm-hmm. Right, the, the more the jurors can connect to the defendant and the issues raised there, the more likely they are to to hear the evidence and be receptive to the defendant's claim of innocence. So, yes, race does play a role at trial among the jurors, um, and certainly after conviction. Um, I think that that's, that's part of it. But the, I think a bigger part of what happens after conviction is that the system is just set up to, to uh, preserve the conviction. Once convicted, it is just extraordinary, extraordinarily challenging to get it reversed. With dealing with all this, specifically 
with the Troy Davis case becoming more and more popular within the final weeks of his life. How do you feel that, you know, the news and the media outlets portrayed the case? Do you think they made it more of an issue about the death penalty or more about the question of innocence or guilt of wrongly convicted people and just a overall faulty judicial system? Well, I'm sure it's going to be different with each outlet and organization that you're speaking about. But my concern throughout this case um, has always been that that it would become more about the death penalty and that the innocence would be seen as just a manipulative tool that the anti-death penalty movement is using for their own uh, good. That was never the case, in fact. I mean, the people that are involved, including those at Amnesty International and these other organizations whose primary agenda is to abolish the death penalty, were involved and captivated by the Troy Davis case because of their, of their actual concern of his innocence. Um, and I wish that and the, uh, the Innocence Network was involved in Troy Davis's case. They were briefs filed on their behalf. But in terms of the media, with, um, from my vantage point, the overwhelming um, stories and interviews were being done with people from Amnesty International and various anti-death penalty groups, which is fine, except that I think the primary messenger in this case should have been the Innocence Network, because that's the primary issue in Troy Davis's case, is that he was factually innocent. And it makes it especially abhorrent for him to suffer the consequence of a, of a death penalty, given his innocence. And it does raise issues about the validity of having the death penalty. Absolutely, it does. But by allowing the anti-death penalty agencies to, to be the main messenger here. It did give people like the former DA, Spencer Lawton, the ability to manipulate the facts to make this be about, oh, don't worry about the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people that are concerned. These are just the little minions of the anti-death penalty movement that just jump on the bandwagon whenever Amnesty International blasts out an email. And it allowed him to portray it as nothing more than a bunch of uninformed people coming, uh, rallying together to serve their own personal agenda of abolishing the death penalty. That was not the case here. Reflecting back, and you may or may not be as involved with this case as well, but with Mumia Abu-Jabbar being convicted of a similar crime, how do you think it compares as far as his innocence being persuaded through the courts compared to, like, Troy Davis? And I, I, I will say that right up front that I, I am familiar with the case. I have not followed it anywhere near um, and, and have not been involved in the legal capacity with it at all. So I am less, um, far less familiar with the details of that, except that I understand that it was the death of a police officer and his claims of factual innocence and issues with regard to the investigation and the integrity of the evidence that was used against him. Um, and as... Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that his sentence was commuted to life um, fairly recently, within the last year or so. Is yeah, that well, that's not exactly the case. It was commuted to a rare sentencing appeal. There is no guarantee that he will not receive the death sentence. So right. it's still kind of up but, in the air. Right. Well, in answer to your question, just given that disclaimer of... of my limited knowledge about it. But what I do think is true in these cases is that um, there, when you have cases that involve um, black defendants being charged with the killing of a police officer, um, 
the danger of wrongful convictions is so much greater because there's this emotional um, charged case in which the people who are responsible for investigating the case are really um, to perceive of themselves as, and perhaps rightly so, as, as the victim in the case, right? This is their colleague that was gunned down. Right. And here they are taking on the responsibility of investigating and determining the truth. And there isn't any other situation where we would let a family member or somebody who perceives themselves as a victim to take the responsibility of assuming an objective role. And so I think that there are some real problems with, um, even if we don't assume bad will on the part of the people doing the investigation, that just human nature um, interferes in our own emotion and attachment to the case can interfere with our objectivity and perhaps make the investigation um, questionable in that regard. In Troy Davis's case, that was certainly an issue. I mean, there was certainly um, instances of police officers overstepping the line and, and picking up anybody and everybody that they, that they could and badgering them to achieve some, some information about the case. Obviously, since it's such a strong persuasion to say that he is innocent and that he has passed if evidence does come up pointing later on that the actual killer is not troy davis well what would be the ramifications of that as far as pursuing justice after he's gone well i think that what we would expect to see is the same people who've been defending the conviction all along will um will do everything in their power to minimize ridicule and otherwise uh, dismiss whatever evidence um, occurs later on. I mean, you know, frankly, there are um, any number of witnesses who already are known who have said that Red Coles has confessed to the crime mm. at one time or another. There are any number of... I mean, the police knew back in 1989 that Red Coles had lied to them when he first came to them that night, that he said that he didn't have a gun, and then he later admitted that he did and then conveniently couldn't find the same caliber gun that was used to shoot Officer McPhail. So there's already been um, a great deal of evidence available and known to the very people that were in a position to do something about it, and they haven't. So I would expect that there will be tremendous resistance to anything and everything that comes up in the future. I think the people that have taken their position uh, that need to believe that Troy is guilty uh, will continue to maintain that position. How are you personally dealing with the outcome of what happened to Mr. Davis? What would you say to Officer McPhail's family as well as Mr. Davis' family? Because two people lost their lives in the whole course of this case. As an attorney who's tried to take uh, whatever role I could to be of assistance, it is, um, there are no words to describe the sense of uh, frustration and helplessness to not be able to do something that seems so obvious and to correct it. It's really, um, it'll, it, it, it's taking um, a toll on me emotionally. Having said that, I can only imagine um, what it's doing for this uh, Troy's family. They are just such a great source of inspiration for those of us who have gotten involved in the case and have met the family and met Troy and they just handle themselves with such grace and dignity, and they've been fighting this fight 
for 20-some-odd years, and they've just been so um, filled with grace and eloquence and, and just completely inspiring people. The McPhail family, I, I, do, I don't have any bad feelings at all, despite the fact that I, I, I disagree with much of what they say. I understand why they have to cling to this belief that Troy is guilty. Um, I think it's a hard thing for people to look at things objectively when they're so close to it. And they're being encouraged to do this by the, um, law enforcement and the system, the, the current prosecutors, the former prosecutors, are really through their, their own conduct and choices encouraging the McPhail family to hang on to this belief that Troy is guilty. So I don't fault them for anything that they've ever said or done. I feel uh, great sympathy and compassion for them for their loss. And I know that this whole process has been a huge ordeal to them as well. In your personal and your professional opinion, what can civilians do in order to protect themselves from being convicted of crimes they did not commit? Well, I think that um, the best thing you can do is make sure you have a good lawyer. And in my uh, view, that does not equate with having the lawyer that you have to spend the most money for, although it could. There are many, many wonderful uh, people that work as public defenders and provide pro bono services that can provide excellent representation. Securing the best lawyer you possibly can under the circumstance and working with the lawyer at all stages in communication um, that part of the problem is is that civilians uh, don't necessarily know what they can do to be helpful and uh, may defer to the lawyer and not kind of check in. And so if there are signs of trouble early on that perhaps the lawyer should be speaking to a witness or doing some type of investigation that they're not doing, the family and the client don't often know about it until it's too late. And when if there comes a time where the client has suffered because of the lawyer's inadequacy, in order to be able to establish that ineffective assistance of counsel in a court of law on appeal or through a habeas, you're going to have to have evidence that the lawyer was aware of certain witnesses and certain evidence and didn't take action in that regard. And so what's important, I think, is there for there to be a very clear record um, of the communication between the client and the attorney, and, and the client has to be forthright with the attorney at all times, even when there's some aspects of the case that uh, would be considered bad facts. It's important that the attorney have everything that they need to have in order to uh, properly represent them. And I know this very state from state, obviously, but for for somebody who does not necessarily have the money to afford a good attorney, what would just be... I guess some general resources the person to educate themselves in order to prepare themselves for their for their trial. Well, one of the things that we're trying to develop here um, and are currently seeking funding for is a resource that we would develop that we want to make uh, to have uh, national relevance, right? That we would, to the extent that the case law is different in different jurisdictions, we want to plug that in as well. But to create a booklet called Informed Innocence which would walk the client through the various things at different stages that they could do to um, protect themselves. You know, the key thing is that what I've said is that you've got to have, you've got to have good communication with, your, with the lawyer. You have to have the updates as to what's happening now with the case. You have to know if they're following up on the information that you've provided. Um, 
and you just have to be engaged at all times and all stages with with your case. What does the justice system overall need to do in order to correct the issue of convicting wrongly accused people? I think we have to create as much uh, objectivity as possible early on in the case. We should not have cases of a police officer's death, for instance, being investigated by members of the same department. Mm. It just, it just uh, creates too much potential for, for problems. I think that um, we have, um, you know, the, the, the law on ineffective assistance of counsel really needs to um, be modified, I think, because there's so much deference to the trial lawyer after the fact uh, and even during the trial, the, uh, and the client that complains to a judge that their lawyer isn't doing anything is more likely to defer to the attorney. Um, so we have to really look at that and see what kinds of um, things we can put in the system to correct that. Obviously, uh, if you look at the Innocence Project, uh, the leading one in New York City, uh, and uh, throughout the states, all of the Innocence Projects are working on these various reforms in their states, but... In Troy's case, he was convicted of eyewitness, uh, faulty eyewitness testimony that was secured under highly suggestive procedures. Well, there are reforms that we're well aware of and are supported by 30 years of science, um, which would make the system more accurate and create more integrity and objectivity into the, the identification process. And there is some movement on that. There are some states that are adopting these reforms and some police departments that are voluntarily doing it. So we need to kind of do more of that. The same is true for um, what is referred to as snitch testimony, informant testimony, incentivized informant testimony, where somebody, usually it's from jail, but doesn't have to be, will provide information to the police. They're not directly involved in the case, but they're claiming that they heard something from the defendant who they don't know, but share a cell with or something like that. That is uh, often very questionable evidence, and there's ways that um, reforms that can be introduced uh, so that that is not relied upon to secure a conviction. The one thing that I think is not sufficiently addressed and the one that we're looking on the, uh, most closely is the issue of the quality of representation that you receive by the lawyer in the first instance. And it politically is challenging because it, it creates... So the lawyers are defensive about having somebody look over their shoulder, and there are practical problems with intervening early on in terms of just a whole host of things that would take too much time to go through here. So there are realities to the challenge of that, but it's such a key component to uh, preventing wrongful convictions. If you don't have the right lawyer doing the right things at the right time, then these wrongful convictions are going to happen. We had a case, We were involved in a case recently where that involved uh, misidentification, and the lawyers just didn't do what they needed to do early on, and that evidence is forever lost. And so that has to be a key aspect of of what we are willing to address uh, in the in the legal community, and that requires the defense lawyers to get on board and to uh, accept the fact that there has to be some way to monitor and oversee the quality of uh, representation that's provided by the indigent defense community. Um, is there any final or last thought that you will want our audience just to keep in mind? 
I would say get involved. I mean, this case has touched the hearts of so many people, and rightfully so. Something about this, there is a way for a variety of people from a host of different perspectives to get involved and to make some real change, that all of us should agree that, if nothing else, the criminal justice system should be about getting the right person in custody for the actual crime that they committed. And none of us should be comfortable with the prospect of, of guilty people being in jail, let alone executed. So I think that there's a variety of ways. You can donate to a project that's doing work in that area. You can, you can become involved and get involved in um, organizations that are actively advocating for reform that would increase the, enhance the accuracy of the criminal justice system. You can reach out to your politicians um, and tell them how you feel about your representatives, how you feel about the death penalty and about innocence and about the danger of somebody being executed when they're innocent. Any number of things that people can do to get involved. And the main important thing is that in order for Troy's death not to have been in vain, the people should want to know the truth about this case, and people should urge for there to be an investigation into this case and the, the, pro, the original prosecutors that handled this case, because I don't think it would take, um, if we had the resources, that it would be that hard to, for all of the world to see how incredibly weak this evidence was and how shameful it is that our system was not able to correct this. You know, it had 20-some-odd years um, to examine it that we never did as a system really look into the facts of the case. Well, Didra, I just want to tell you thank you very much for taking the time out to speak with all of us about the case and your legal, as well as your per personal information about this issue in the legal system. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate being able to do anything that would be helpful.